Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Bard, with Consultant 360 Specialty Network. According to the most recent data available from the CDC, about 1 in 54 children has been identified with autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Thomas Mearsman is here to speak with us about ASD today. Dr. Mearsman is the program director of the Masters of Science in Physician Assistant Studies and an assistant professor of Physician Assistant Studies at North Central College in Naperville, Illinois. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Mearsman. You're presenting the session Lost at Sea in ASD, Techniques for Improved Communication and Examination of Pediatric Patients with Autism Spectrum Disorders at AAPA 2021. Can you please give us an overview of your session? Sure, I'd be happy to. And first, let me just say it's my absolute pleasure to be here with you today and have the opportunity to get the word out about ASD and providing medical care to this special population. And that kind of ties in, that's the intention of the session is to point out and address knowledge gaps and skill deficits that currently exist in in medical and PA education curricula regarding the care of individuals with autism. I think when it comes to learning the knowledge, skills, and abilities within the ASD population, PA education tends to cover things like knowledge quite well. I think medical providers are familiar with the DSM-5 criteria for autism. They can rattle off repetitive, restrictive, ritualistic behaviors, the impairments in social and emotional functioning, impairments in speech, things of that nature. But then taking it the next step and receiving formal training on how to navigate some of the unique needs of individuals in the ASD populations is lacking. And so the, the goal of this lecture is to fill those gaps and skill deficits. I cover within the lecture a study where healthcare providers self-rate themselves on their ability to care for individuals with ASD. And it's quite shocking. I think 77% of healthcare providers self-rated their ability to care for individuals with ASD as at best fair or poor. So over three quarters of medical providers realize that they're pretty lousy in working with this population. You know, furthermore, rates of specific phobias are higher in the ASD population that receives medical care, 44% versus 6% in the neurotypical population. And I think the end result is that healthcare providers, unfortunately, because they're not comfortable and because challenges are higher, will over-rely on things such as sedation, physical restraint, or even foregoing procedures that are necessary altogether because they're not comfortable and they don't have the proper skills and abilities to evaluate these individuals. So the end goal is to to try to fill that gap. And, uh, you know, that's tough to do in an hour, but at least provide some basic coverage so that PAs and other healthcare providers can uh, feel a little bit more comfortable and uh, do a better job with individuals with ASD. Right. We certainly want to improve that. How does a clinician categorize the unique sensory needs of children with ASD? Yeah, an excellent question. And it's difficult to categorize those needs because it's a spectrum, right? Those needs are so individual. And so an individualized approach, I think, is best, but having familiarity, kind of painting in broad strokes, I think is important to have an understanding of the basic sensory 
needs throughout the spectrum, I should say. So there are hypersensitivities, and those tend to be categorized as as sensory avoiding behaviors. An example of that would be an auditory hypersensitivity in an autistic child. So having knowledge of that before you enter in the room, I think is, is vital for having a successful examination of that child and then making accommodations for that, that sensory hypersensitivity. An example would be something simple, noise canceling headphones, or even closing the door as, as that individual is waiting to be seen so that they're comfortable at the same time, just Again, in those broad strokes, there are hyposensitivities. So those tend to be categorized as sensory seeking behaviors. Example of that, the result of a proprioceptive or auditory hyposensitivity. So that that individual, that child with ASD would be more comfortable with an accommodation such as opportunities for movement in the clinic, rocking, swinging, or if you have a coping kit providing increased input, sensory input, like a weighted blanket. Again, those are just examples, but being aware that individuals with ASD throughout the spectrum have sensory hyper and hyposensitivities almost universally, knowing how to identify those, being aware of those before you walk in to see that patient, and then being familiar with some of these these really easy in retrospect, kind of intuitive accommodations that you can make, but first being forewarned is forearmed. As you mentioned in the beginning, children with ASD can have challenges related to anxiety and phobias during a physical exam. How can a clinician identify those responses? And so this is something that um, I build towards in the lecture, but the short answer is you have to perform an ASD needs assessment. And so there are formalized assessment tools. There's a wonderful text by Hudson. It's an older text, a book that came out in 2006 that's called Prescription for Success, Supporting Children with ASD in the Medical Environment. I wouldn't be put off at the fact that it came out in 2006. The recommendations are still timely and still apply to individuals with ASD. And so there's a section of that text that has a detailed outline of what an ASD needs assessment looks like. I review that in the lecture or something similar to that in in the lecture. However, I think that can be overwhelming especially if you're not evaluating children with ASD on a regular basis. So a lot of people are familiar with a SWOT analysis. So strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And and that's essentially what you're doing with this needs assessment. You're identifying the strengths that these individuals have with ASD. So the things that, that they may excel at during the evaluation, things they're comfortable with, weaknesses that they may have. So hypo or hypersensitivities that need to be accommodated for, for them to be comfortable and to decrease anxiety opportunities to help them, which you could seek the guidance of the parent or guardian that that's present. You know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are excellent resources and then threats to the successful completion. So if there's an area of the physical exam, that's, that's known to be problematic to identify that. So if you did something as simple as having a pre-screening of individuals with ASD to identify the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities for success and threats to a successful examination, identifying that, reviewing it before you walk in, you are so far ahead of the game. 
and think that's key to having a successful medical evaluation in this population. What kinds of behavioral techniques can assist a clinician while using instruments or performing procedures that are often difficult in the examination of children with ASD? So there are a number of techniques that have been identified both anecdotally and and mentioned in the medical research. And then those that have been more heavily researched, uh, there's a section at the end of the, the lecture that reviews the research in a little bit more granular detail. But, you know, I think some highlights, uh, a study by Kuvo et al. from 2010 highlights ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis-Based Techniques. If you're unfamiliar with ABA, It's a common therapy that's provided to individuals with ASD and ASD-like needs involves multiple discrete trials and positive reinforcement. The study by Kuva et al., they performed multiple trials in individuals with ASD to try to train them to be compliant with a 10-component physical exam. And so the end result was that over time, they were able to get these individuals with ASD comfortable enough to being examined that all were compliant with a physical exam when they had severe non-compliance at the beginning of the study. Can we do that type of intervention? Most of us as clinicians admittedly probably can't, but it was proof that if you have an ASD patient that's coming in for multiple evaluations that if you do it correct, you, you examine them correctly and you take the time to identify their needs, they, they should get better over time as you would expect of, of a neurotypical patient as well. I think another useful technique because it has just great face value, it's intuitive that anyone can use. There was another research study that highlighted actually a dental-based study, but the technique is, is summarized as tell, show, feel, do, or TSFD. I get into more detail about this in the lecture as well, but essentially you're telling the individual what it is that you're going to do. An example would be, I'm, I'm going to examine your ears. You show them to display that on the either anatomical model or a stuffed animal that that's been researched as well and shown to be useful. You allow them to feel the instrument that they may be anxious, for example, an otoscope, then you proceed to do the exam. So just taking a step back, slowing things down, telling them, showing them, allowing them to feel the examining device, and then doing that exam, making that a deliberate process, that alone has been shown to be extremely effective. It slows things down. It outlines the process in terms that individuals with ASD are more accustomed to, provides some interaction with a a fearful instrument, and leads to more successful examination as well. So it's a simple technique, but I think quite profound. And the research supports that as well and its ability to help with these difficult components of the evaluation. That sounds like wise advice. What are the common components of coping kits and visual communication tools and how should a clinician use them during the examination? Well, coping kits can be as varied as the needs of individuals with ASD. Um, I think you'll see some common components. So 
for those who are unfamiliar with coping kits, typically they're comprised of, of toys or tools that provide increased visual, tactile, or auditory input. And the goal is to decrease anxiety, stress, and, and also to address some of those sensory hyper or hyposensitivities similar to those that, that I had discussed before. So how does a coping kit do that? What is it comprised of? Well, you'll, you'll typically see things like fidget spinners that provide tactile input, headphones, again, to, to decrease the auditory input for those that are hypersensitive in, in that uh, domain. Um, small fans, uh, both with visual and some tactile input from the fan bubble wands. Uh, there are chewy tubes. So uh, uh, some individuals with ASD have a, a oral hyposensitivity, they're oral seeking. So a chewy tube uh, has a medical grade rubber that uh, it'd be single use, of course, but that, that individuals can kind of chew on that they find soothing. These devices can can sometimes you know, provide something familiar from outside the clinic that they're used to interacting with at home. So again, getting some guidance from the, the parent or caregiver is useful with the coping kits. Um, my favorite coping kit tool is the tool that everyone has pretty much 24 seven or all waking hours in their pocket, a smartphone or some kits will have tablets. And so just bringing up something as simple as a familiar clip or a preferred cartoon or movie, you know, again, relying on the, the parent or caregiver to guide that, that healthcare, asking what's Johnny's favorite cartoon, bringing that cartoon up on the phone, even playing a, a short clip over and over, it's familiar, it's repetitive, it can have an immediate soothing effect for that individual, bringing something that's, that's familiar into this unfamiliar environment. And those are examples and techniques that I think anyone can use. You just have to have it available. What research is being done to support these guidelines for examination of children with ASD? You did mention a few previously, but really what research is being done? I'll apologize off the bat because I'm a bit of a research nerd, especially in, <laughs> in this uh, uh, area. So I could go on and on about research. I'll, I'll save you the <laughs> uh, from that. But I would say there's there's not a paucity of research. Studies exist, but I, my personal feeling is this is an under-researched topic within the, the realm of medical research. I had highlighted earlier that Kuvo et al. study from 2010, training compliance with physical exams. So that, that's one example. Coping kits have been more often researched within you know, this area. A study by Drake et al. from 2012 looked into the use of a coping kit in the, the emergency department and showed significant improvement just using a coping kit versus not having that coping kit available when evaluating children with ASD. You know, there, there are other studies I highlighted that tell, show, feel, do technique. That's actually a dental study. It was a study showing compliance with a dental exam from 2014. And I think that tell, show, feel, do again, has, has so much face value. It's so intuitive that it, it's easy to see how that would be successful in the medical environment as well. My personal feelings are if, if it works during a dental exam, knowing how much I enjoy a dental exam or a typically developing individual struggles with a dental exam, if it works in that realm, it's going to work for, for us as PAs as well. 
You told me while we were emailing back and forth before this that it's your mission in creating the last at sea in ASD lecture to get the word out to other clinicians regarding the evaluation of individuals with autism. Why are you particularly so passionate about this subject? Yeah, thanks for that question. You can't see, but I'm I'm nodding and just in, in recognition. This is a a personal topic. I have a, a young son who's autistic and nonverbal and, and raising him really opened my eyes to this population. It's a population, of course, as a medical provider, I was aware of before, but really witnessing his struggles during medical exams, they're, they're all of our struggles. And, you know, as a clinician, physician assistant, educator, researcher, I, I saw opportunities to fill a knowledge, skill, and an ability gap that currently exists. I, I saw this as my call to action, and it, it's really all of our call to action if you're, if you're interacting with this population. And increasingly these days, all of us are in, in our own ways. I think the, the more clinicians I talk to about this topic, the more I hear refrains like, I wish I would have learned that in school. You know, they, they never covered that in, in my clinical training. And so, uh, again, that was a call to action for me. Having uh, some additional perspective, I think, adds to the ability. And I stepped through some, some case-based examples of challenges. Uh, and, and they highlight challenges that I've had both as a provider and as a parent. And I hope that's useful to those that hear the lecture. And that's how I got in on this <laughs> and this rabbit hole. But but it's it's been it's been so enlightening and it's been something I've enjoyed so much more than I, I ever anticipated when I started, you know, when the germ of the idea <laughs> spread. Well, I can tell you're passionate about it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Is there really anything else that you'd like to add or touch on? Oh, I'm sure it's not surprising. There are a few things. <laughs> um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for asking. Um, I think, you know, overall, small efforts make really big differences in the, the ASD and, and special needs populations in general. We're all busy as clinicians. Increasingly, we're under more pressure to increase our RVUs, to improve, uh, you know, our metrics and improve our patient satisfaction scores. Certainly, I, I feel that as well. But I think when you're evaluating the ASD population, it's important to hit the brakes, uh, slow down, take the time to utilize you know, simple and effective techniques such as tell, show, feel, do, uh, using coping kits, et cetera. Um, you know, that doing so will improve not only the current interaction, but the future interaction down the road for, for individuals with ASD. Uh, one, once clinicians practice these techniques um, and implement them, you see an immediate improvement in, in the medical interactions within this population. And a little knowledge goes a long way. I mean, that's the idea is, is to just cover the tip of the iceberg, get that out there into clinicians' hands and to utilize those techniques. I think get it, getting this right in the ASD population is unbelievably rewarding. So spread the word to your, your medical colleagues. I think you'll be glad you did and it'll make you feel good. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Sure. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for reaching out to me.